Okay, friends, we're in 2 Kings, and we're making good progress. We're in chapter 17, and in this chapter, we're actually going to see a really dramatic change in how things have been going. We've had a few chapters that have covered decades of kind of just circling the bowl, so to speak, things going bad, and but just keeping going, going bad, and the northern kingdom's not worshiping God right, and the southern kingdom is hit and miss, and but in this chapter, we're going to see the uh, invasion of Israel by Assyria and uh, the conquest of Samaria. And the people are going to be removed and the land is going to be repopulated with foreigners. And there's going to be some long sections of the author of the book, who is a prophet speaking on behalf of God. He's going to give a theological explanation of what happens. So, let's get into it. Verse 1. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, the king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel, and he reigned nine years. Okay, so we're back into the northern kingdom. Verse 2. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So, he's bad, but not as bad. And then here comes the big change. Against him came up Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute but the king of Assyria found treachery in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, the king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, so he, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison, and the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. Okay, so here is the political situation. This king Hosea becomes king. And the regional superpower of Assyria with a new king, Shalmaneser, remember Tiglath-Pileser was causing trouble previously, and now here's a new king of Assyria. He comes to Israel, and Hosea surrenders to uh, Assyria and becomes a vassal, which means that they're a nation that retains its nationhood, but is usually committed by covenant to obedience to this greater king. And there's this uh, tribute that's paid, so every year... Probably every year, but it could be more frequently. A certain amount of money was required from Assyria. And this did two things. There was an honor um, relationship here. This tribute just means like you're greater than me and I give you this money to show you're greater than me. Um, it also had the economic effect of weakening vassal countries so that they wouldn't have as much money to like hire armies and raise armies and stuff like that. So after a certain amount of time, Hosea decides to quietly rebel. So he doesn't give the tribute to Assyria, but instead takes the money and tries to hire uh, Egypt to come and wage war against Assyria. And this was a common, remember it's happened before, where um, Israel or Judah will hire foreign powers to come and help them in a military alliance against um, some other country. So... Um, this is all just political stuff. And you don't have any stories about prayer or seeking the Lord or anything like this. This is kind of just Hosea being a political, uh, with political machinations. Um, and the attempted alliance with Egypt does not materialize. And instead, Assyria shows up and captures the king and besieges the city. Verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria... Uh, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala, and on the Habor, and the river Gozen, and the cities of the and in the cities of the Medes. So this was not uncommon for these superpowers when they've conquered a people, especially if the people have rebelled. 
that they would depopulate the nation and spread them out throughout their empire because people in general are less likely to rebel against people when they don't have a city to rebel from or their hometown, their home country. There's their, their patriotism is kind of deflated by just spreading them out geographically. They can't unite they, and they don't have a homeland to fight for. And very often these people groups would just end up blending in with everybody else and they would just be completely dispersed. Verse 7, and now we get a theological explanation because typically in history when something bad like this happened, people would actually blame God for it, that the faithlessness is on his part. Remember when Gideon is approached by that angel and says like, hail mighty man of valor, Gideon's response is like, where's God? How come he's let all this stuff happen to us? And so with the devastation of the northern kingdom, it wouldn't be hard for people to say, and all this happened because God was weak and God failed and people prayed and nothing happened. But instead, the prophet is going to give a divine kingdom, heavenly interpretation and a covenantal one. He's going to explain it by terms of covenant faithfulness. Verse 7, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced, excuse me, and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord, their God, things that were not right. Obviously they tried to do it in secret, but they, God knows everything. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on the high places as the nations did, whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in according with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Verse 14, But they would not listen, they were, but they were stubborn as their fathers had been, and they did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all their commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves metal images of two calves. So this goes all the way back to right after Solomon. It was, was uh, Allah had the kingdom divided in the time of Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Uh, sorry, verse 16 again, halfway through. Made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Okay, so you have this humongous uh, covenantal um, interpretation of what just happened here, where you have hundreds of years of history summarized as like this happened because Israel's persistent unfaithfulness to the covenant of Moses which God co commanded them not to worship idols to make idols or to worship the gods of other nations and uh, they were completely faithless and persistently faithless and God actually bore with them through prophets for 
generations calling them out of their sin and they really wouldn't listen and so eventually the northern kingdom was brought into exile and if you go and read deuteronomy especially the end of deuteronomy god did promise that he would bring the people into exile for persistent covenant unfaithfulness and so god is even keeping his covenant keeping the words of his covenant and it's interesting that this thing that precipitates this is that um, Hosea actually did make a covenant with the king of Assyria to be his vassal, but then rebelled against that covenant. And in the rebelling of that covenant, he uh, brings about the exile of the northern kingdom. And so even there's this sense that um, Israel couldn't be faithful to the divine covenant they had with God, the Lord, and they couldn't even keep worldly covenants that they made with the king of Assyria. And if they'd been been able to keep that worldly covenant, they would have persisted a little bit longer in the land you think i could be wrong but you think so this is the explanation it's their unfaithfulness they make promises they don't keep and they turn to false gods instead of worshiping true gods and just like Hosea turned to egypt a false deliverer to rescue them from the king of assyria and it didn't work out so there is kind of this interesting political and theological intermixing in how this all went down Verse 19, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of the plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebuch king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. So look, he's going back all the way to the beginning of 1 Kings here. After the reign of, uh, after the reign of Solomon and harking back to the first King Jeroboam and how it was a persistent unfaithfulness to God through their idolatry. Verse 22, the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And we've talked about those little phrases like until this day. Obviously, at our point of reading this, some, some more stuff has gone on. Assyria doesn't even exist anymore. But they do, when they're writing this, or as, as these books are being preserved from one generation to the next, whether it's scribes preserving it or a next generation of prophet, they do preserve that like moment in time when this was originally written to keep that sense of like the life of the book. So there was a time when a prophet wrote this, and it was still happening until this day and maybe as the book goes on you know because this event happens here at a, a point of time but there is going to be a number of generations from when judah goes into exile as well but that doesn't happen right away it happens a few chapters later for us but it is a few generations later for them but they hold on to the until this day part to just capture that there was a time when a prophet wrote this down um, in time that's what I think is going on. All right. So that theological explanation is done. It wasn't the Lord being unfaithful to Israel. It was God being faithful to his covenant with unfaithful Israel. Promised them that they would be exiled if they weren't faithful. And it eventually happened. But God's patience is so great. He wrestled with the people with prophets, prophets for hundreds of years and waited for hundreds of years for them to repent at some point but even though they had some okay-ish moments um, usually it was just bad 
24. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions amongst them, which killed some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he sent lines amongst them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law of the God of the land. So interesting little story here. Um, the same way the Israelites have been scattered throughout the empire, the people from throughout the empire are now going to be scattered in um, northern the northern nation in Israel and in Samaria. And this is actually the roots of the whole Samaritan conflict that you see in the Gospel of John, where there's these people called the Samaritans who don't interact with the Jews. And they trace it back to this event, really, where the Israelites were removed and that neighborhood was replaced with foreign people. And so there was this sense that the Samaritans who lived in Samaria, even though they had the Pentateuch, they had the first five books of Moses, they weren't really considered true Jews because of their heritage here, or their intermixing with people, or whatever it is, that's why they were considered like not actual people who belonged in the promised land, because their descendants would have been uh, these people, or intermixed with these people. So anyhow, these people are brought from all over, it's still God's land, even though he just exiled his people, it's still his land, and so the pagan practices of the people here are being met with um, the creatures of the land attacking these new humans. They're rejecting the false worship of these new humans uh, by attacking them. And interestingly, the counselors of the Assyrian king have some insight. They think the problem is that this land belonged to the Lord and the Lord is not pleased with the practices of the new residents. 27. Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there. Let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests who they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So this is an interesting thing. They're going to talk about like the fear of gods and the fear of the Lord a lot, which um, people who do word studies in Hebrew point to and say, Hey, when you see that phrase, the fear of the Lord, it doesn't just mean like reverence or actually like terror of the Lord. It includes this sense of proper worship based on revelation. That's why a priest who hopefully has some sense of the law of Moses is sent there to teach the people how to actually live by the law of the God of this land. And that's the fear of the Lord where they say, hey, this is your property. We're going to respect you by living according to the law of the land. And so just so, so you know, when you read that phrase, the fear of the Lord, it's got this sense of like emotions of like respect and reverence and maybe awe and sometimes dread. But it also has this ingredient of like knowing what God's expectations are and seeking to live according to his law. Verse 29, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth, the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire of Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. 
They also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of peoples as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from amongst whom they carried they'd been carried away. So again, when I read this, this is so interesting because the end result of all this people movement is that there's still um, a group of mixed motive religious people who have some kind of worship of the Lord whose property this whole land is, but there's also a lot of idolatry going on. Um, and I think this is meant to come through as such a condemnation of Israel that God actually removed Israel from the promised land, from the northern kingdom, and replaced it with absolute, like, unbelieving foreigners. And it was the same. No difference. And there's kind of this, just in history, sociologically, there's this proof that this is why Israel was removed, because God took them out and replaced them with the foreign nations, and there was no change of behavior. The Israelites had been living like they were complete foreigners in the land. And there was even a sense that once the lions attacked the foreigners, they were at least willing to put in some effort to fear the Lord, as well as worship their own gods. And so this is meant to be tragic, I think. It's meant to be grievous and tragic and a condemnation of how Israel had let themselves get, uh, but also an explanation of where all these people came from who would be living in the northern kingdom, north of Judah, at the time of the completion of the book. Verse 34. To this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord. They do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or, or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. Okay, so like, look, he's bringing the book all the way back to Genesis here, that these are the children of Abraham, of Jacob. They had the promises of Abraham. God had changed the name of Jacob to Israel. And he's just, he's just bringing together all of biblical history up to this point and explaining what's going on. Verse 35, the Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow down yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them, but you shall fear the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. This is just uh, Deuteronomy. This is Exodus. This is the Ten Commandments. Verse 37, and the statutes and the rules and the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods. You shall not forget the covenant that I made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God, and he will deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. However, they would not listen, and they did according to their former manner. So again, we have this theological explanation of what's going on with this sweeping view of history, this total pullout, this like Google Maps pullout to see the entire planet of biblical story all the way from Jacob in who appears, you know, kind of in the middle of Genesis until now. And God's had this consistent message of have faith in me and obey me when I speak to you. Believe my words and don't worship idols. And the reason this great exile happened in the northern kingdom was persistent unbelief and acting like the foreign nations and becoming like them through the worshiping of their gods so much so that you could get rid of israel and replace them with the foreigners and there was no different uh, 41 so these nations feared the lord and also served their carved images their children did likewise and their children's children's as their fathers did so they do this day and you can just hear you know a time of Jesus Israelite hearing that story and thinking about the Samaritans up north 
with their mixed worship, their not quite right worship, and this hardness in their heart against them, that they are a constant reminder of the northern kingdom's exile and the foreigners who are brought in to depopulate and repopulate the land and just this sense of, yeah, we are not the same people. And then imagine Jesus going into their country and having a conversation with a woman and saying, now a time is coming where it doesn't matter what your heritage is. It doesn't matter if you're worshiping in Samaria or you're worshiping in Jerusalem. What God is looking for, because the first covenant didn't, didn't make it, he's going to make a new covenant in my blood. What he's looking for is people who will truly worship him in the spirit and the truth. No more idols. No more idols, but true worshipers in the spirit and the truth that God's always wanted since the beginning in the garden. And I think that's what this chapter is all about. In the next chapter, we'll go on with the ongoing saga of Judah. They're going to end up having one of their best kings at this time, which is wonderful. They're going to have a revival in Judah as, as Israel is going into exile. Judah has a revival, which is a real mercy from the Lord. But uh, it's a big chapter, chapter 17. Be blessed. <laughs>